G'day, here at the Regenerative Journey, part of our goal is to educate our followers on the benefits of knowing where their food comes from and the knock-on effects this can have on our health, our environment and our future generations. Understanding the connection has never been more important and in the spirit of this endeavour, we have teamed up with Highland Beef Pastoral Company, a grass-fed beef supply chain servicing the growing US grass-fed consumer market, who I'm excited to announce are our Season 6 show sponsors. Essentially, this Australian-based business places cattle on their member graziers' properties at no expense to the farmer and provides competitive returns for every kilo of beef produced, allowing their graziers to focus on improving their businesses in a capital-free and risk-free environment. Highland Beef Graziers are some of the best grass and animal managers in the country. Livestock are humanely and lovingly cared for while on their farms and customers are guaranteed a very high-quality, regeneratively managed grass-fed and finished product with full transparency from farm to plate. If you're interested in finding out more about this program, visit hbpastoral.com.au forward slash Charlie Arnott. I could never have imagined walking into a room of 600 farmers and seeing that side of them, that really emotional side reacting to what would possibly be called a slightly quirky set of interventions reaching from the outer universe right the way down to microbes on our own gut and thinking about things like the three brains and how we work and then generally connecting that to the health of animals and plants and where as an audience as a group of people I felt as if there was a like not just a common cause but a common empathy that we were in it together and that actually everybody was listening to stories because they were going to tell those stories when they went home. That was Jacqueline McLeod and you're listening to The Regenerative Journey. From wherever we are, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia, recognising their continuing connection to this land, its waterways, the stars in the skies since time immemorial. We pay our respects to the elders, knowledge holders and to all the generations of First Nations peoples who have nurtured their unceded sovereign lands for over 80,000 years and continue to do so today. G'day, I'm your host Charlie Arnott, an 8th generational Australian regenerative farmer and in this podcast series I'll be diving deep and exploring my guests' unique perspectives on the world so you can apply their experience and knowledge to cultivate your own transition to a more regenerative way of life. Welcome to The Regenerative Journey with your host Charlie Arnott. G'day and welcome back to The Regenerative Journey. Before I bang on about our next guest, uh, I just wanted to um, just say I'm at the farm at Byron Bay. There's a little bit of echo. It's not the most ideal location for me to be doing a um, uh, doing sort of a recording. However, because there's cars outside and there's dogs barking and there's people and all sorts of creaking creaking chairs, uh, just forewarning you that that's, that's going to affect sound quality a little bit. I did actually notice on a couple of episodes ago when I spoke to Blair Behe, the sound quality wasn't quite as good. And I think I've got the, I had the cords around the wrong way. First time I've ever done that and it kind of wasn't syncing properly or something. There was, I sounded very far away. I hope the, you pushed on and listened to an amazing, um, chat with Blair, Koala Blair Beatty. I did also just wanted to, um, 
try something a little different. And I noticed that uh, Russell Brand, who is a prolific podcaster and, well, I'd say he probably calls himself an ex-actor. I don't know if he's going to do any more acting or get gigs in Hollywood given some of his very uh, his hardcore um, stance on a few things, which I tend to agree with him on all of it. Um, he reads out a few of the lovely things that people say about his podcast. I'm going to try that too. Now, a fellow called Patrick Blooming, who's probably listening to this, he was in the um, Walking the Camino trial there a few weeks ago and this is what he very kindly sent to me and I this this is the sort of stuff and I'm going to bang on I know and you're going well you know we want to hear the next the next guest but I'm I just want to I mean yes it's a bit of a promo for what we do and like okay we seem to be doing a pretty good job uh hopefully that's why you're listening but um it's just nice to to read the how it's impacted some people and there's, there's there's actually a lot of feedback we get um, and these are sort of the more recent ones that I've just sort of pulled out but but Patrick said hey Charlie been walking the Camino listening to your podcast and getting deeply inspired as I live deeper into my own regenerative journey I just love it when people use that expression regenerative journey I know it's not mine I mean I guess I've got the regenerative journey podcast and all of the trimmings but it's just such a meaningful um, expression. I help. I began helping my partner with 40 acres of olive groves and vineyards outside of Heathcote. And there's a Heathcote or Heathcote. Anyway, down there in Victoria two years ago. Having no clue what I was doing, it was, it was after listening to your podcast with Peter and then Stuart Andrews that I took the plunge and did a natural circumstance farming course. Fantastic. We're actually got on with Peter, oh, Stuart, and hopefully Peter will rock up in October next year. October next year, Hannah Mino, Natural Circuits Farming. I'm not sure when um, Stuart's going to um, announce that. Well, I just did, didn't I? But I'm not sure he's going to make tickets available. But you better get your skates on if you want to do this sort of cool Natural Circuits Farming stuff. And Hannah Mino, it all started for me as a young dacker. Uh, October 2023. Anyway, back to Patrick. Still heaps to learn, but I want to thank you for being an inspiring force for a young songwriter turned farmer. We've now got Condor Banks and more trees in the ground that you can, well, poke a stick at. Um, cheers, be a dream to meet and learn from you in the flesh one day. As it would be, Patrick, you might have to teach me how to play the guitar, seeing as you do such a wonderful job. Um, a couple of others, I'm just going to wrap. These came from the... Um, uh, Podcast, Apple Podcast, you know, review, which I have to, can I just encourage anyone who has a minute spare or, or 30 seconds, it won't take long, to just rate, review, subscribe and um, comment on any of the podcast platforms you listen to this. It's, it's Regenerative Journeys on quite a few. These comments come from the Apple Podcast. Um, this is a superb pod. There's always something to add to my reading, listening list after each episode, and the guests always spur me into new lines of thoughts and questioning. Interviewees are eclectic and would definitely not all agree on absolutely everything and would not uh, would definitely not all agree on absolutely everything, but that's what keeps it. Oh, and I forgot to press the button to show more. Maybe that's his, maybe it said, but what keeps it interesting. Another one, this podcast series is densely packed with inspiration, even better, the tidbits of wisdom are dispensed in a practical, no-nonsense way by real people who just want to share. I can't wait to put some of these ideas into practice. I'll give you one more. Um, I don't even know. No, it's not going to finish that one. Uh, so much learning. I enjoy every minute of these podcasts listening while I work. Charlie is humble, insightful, and likable. My, well, that's nice. Uh, my favourite podcast by far, Yes. <laughs> Ripper. So I don't know. I mean, I'm reading it out. I'm getting a bit of a fat head, but um, this is why I do it. You know, when I get the feedback, people are saying, you know, I was inspired by a Peter or Stuart Andrews interview or a 
um, Terry McCosker, who any of them, every single one of my podcasts, I have to say, we've got feedback that someone or people have been inspired by that particular person, by that guest, and that is, that's just, it's just such a wonderful, wonderful thing because I think, well, if the interview had been, hadn't been done, you know, and that person hadn't, and the, and the listener hadn't, hadn't heard that interview, then maybe they would be on a different journey. You know, maybe they wouldn't have started the journey or they would have started it much later or I don't know. It's one of those bit of a sliding door moment, isn't it? You either, you either choose to click the button on the next episode or a new podcast and there are so many out there. I'm totally overwhelmed when I go, I'm driving and think I might just see what's on and I tend to go back to the ones I know because I kind of, I'm not that adventurous. You, know, you might get flicked a, a recommendation um, but, yeah, I don't know. It, 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 there's just so many out there. And also, when this comes out, we, you will know whether we, we won a, 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 um, the uh, Climate Award of the Australian Podcast Awards too. I mean, that in, that in itself is, is wonderful. One last bang on before I go. That, um, that yeah, no, we got nominated. We were nominated and, and we are shortlisted for the Climate Award in, in our third year of, of um, uh Application to the to the to the Australian Podcast Awards. We got in our first year. We got um, best interview um, shortlist, which was I just blew my head. I go, are you serious? Like this is this we're just doing this for a bit of fun. Um, but that I have to say probably spurred us on to keep on going. And um, didn't do any good last year, but this year we've picked up a shortlist for the Climate Award, which is thrilled. So thrilling. So when you hear this, um, uh, is, is probably um, no doubt. Well, definitely be beyond when the um, when this uh, the awards are, are being made. Okay, enough rabbiting on about how wonderful this this um, this show is. It's more the people, actually. To be honest, it's more the people that are on the sh- on the show, my guests, that make it something. I mean, I could I could interview anyone really, but um, I'm not sure everyone wants to listen to everyone else. So it's the it's the guests, and I have to say thank you. We are thinking about a little cool project that re- re- involves. I might have mentioned it last time on my other rants. Uh, involves our some of our podcast guests. I can't do anymore. Rocket in trouble. Jacqueline McGlade is our next guest. You'll be listening to her. Uh, it's only a short, pretty short interview, just quietly, because she was absolutely under the pump um, with uh, her trip to Australia. She just she's presented at the um, RCS Convergence Con- Conference in the middle of July there in Brisbane, and very gratefully and thankfully she agreed to meet me at 7 o'clock the next morning uh, for about 40, 50 minutes before she ducked off to MLA. Um, because she was just so busy. She'd been up at, till 3 o'clock just working on something um, because she was sort of in, in UK time. Gave me 50 minutes of her time and literally bolted, ran. I followed her and ran and she ran into the coffee shop and ran out and ran into the cab and I was just running. And she's, a, she's, a, she's incredible, I have to say. She is absolutely incredible. Um, you'll have to listen to the interview to, to understand why. Those who sort of picked the tidbits up at the conference, you'll understand. But sitting with her, I just was totally blown away. It was like, almost like she was just making – she wasn't making stuff up, but it was like, oh, my God, really? You did that? Like she did Arctic – endurance races, you know, sailing and also sailing around the world. And he's always, and she married a Maasai king, warrior king, you know, in Africa. Like, this is like, really, this is a, this is a fictional book. This is a novel, you know, this is like a, this is a Wilbur Smith book on steroids. Um, so, but it's all true. 
and I can't wait, and I did prod it and say, you've got to write this down. Someone's got to capture this into a book or a movie. It would be incredible. So, look, I hope you find this interview incredible. I certainly did. Uh, not going into too much detail about it because you'll just have to listen to this pretty short one of Jacqueline McGlade. So enjoyed catching up with her. I hope I get the opportunity to do it again, maybe in the UK or back in Australia here somewhere. Phenomenal. And, um, yeah, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did uh, recording it. Jacqueline McGlade on The Regenerative Journey. Jacqueline McGlade, is that sexy enough? That's lovely. <laughs> <laughs> I've got, got my early morning gravity voice on. <laughs> my croaky, non-alcoholic consumption voice. <laughs> welcome to the Regenerative Journey and welcome to, um, I think it's A2. We're in the Arbor Room area of the Brisbane Convention Centre and we're overlooking um, a road, a busy road on South Bank in Brisbane. <laughs> And you've been kind enough to meet me here early in the morning, um, hence our gravelly voices, and you got to bed late, which we might get to. Um, so welcome. And Thank you. And it's a pleasure to have you here. It's a, it was wonderful to hear you speak at the RCS conference uh, two days ago in the afternoon. And um, I usually set the scene and I, I meet with my guests in their happy place, their, their farm, their garden, their sort of thing. We are far from that, I imagine. Um, however, I thought I'd just ask you about the conference and your, your impressions of any highlights, you know, any takeaways. You said, oh, my God, that's a, that's a brilliant, you know, um, thing. I've got one in mind, but um, it's about you, not me. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I think the highlight for me was actually the, the audience, the participants. I could never imagine have walking into a room of 600 farmers and seeing that side of them, that really emotional side reacting to what would possibly be called a slightly quirky set of interventions reaching from the outer universe right the way down to microbes on our own gut and thinking about things like the three brains and how we work. And then generally connecting that to the health of animals and plants and where as an audience, as a group of people, I felt as if there was a, a like not just a common cause but a common empathy that we were in it together and that actually everybody was listening to stories because they were going to tell those stories when they went home. And so this was the beginning of a, of a big narrative that we wove together, and I think that was just fabulous. And there are 600-plus people there, and every, what occurred to me was everyone in that room, because they're there and they've bothered and that's the sort of people they are, there's 600-plus amazing stories there. Absolutely. But, you know, there are highlights. So obviously some individuals on the podium speaking and, and in a sense, going on their personal journey in front of everyone in a very, very emotional way. I don't think there was a dry eye in the room. To the To the highlight of a quirky little bit of film which demonstrated that animals really do have taste and they do know what is nice to see little sheep kind of eyeing up the straw on another plot not being able to get there and then leaning as hard as they can on the fence to try and get to that straw and not eating the one that they've been given (laughs) so I think that animal intelligence natural intelligence the crowd intelligence I think they all came together to to give something completely special and very unique have you been is it is that uh, somewhere, some conference you've been to before, a similar kind of theme or, or dare I say, outcome you know, of that? Is it something that you've, you're familiar with? Is it, do, we, do they do that in, the, in, in anywhere else in the world you've been to? In, I, the depth? 
I've been to a meeting which was quite famous. It's called Talbeg. If you didn't know where it is, it's in Sweden. Incredibly special community where around a, around a big, big lake, people were put up in houses and little hostels and rooms and would come together under a big tent in the sort of early 2000s. And in that big tent... We had indigenous people's leaders, we had world leaders, we had great thinkers, and it was the beginning I saw of a new galvanization of the world around climate change and justice. And again, it was stories from all over the world, but it was the same candor and openness and honesty. I think that's what I saw, but it's very, very special. And when was that? How long ago was that? That was nearly 20 years ago. I was going to say, because if it only just happened the other day, then why why did we take so long to do that? Um, Jacqueline, again, the regenerative journey is all about your journey and I know we've got limited time too, because you you got to bed at three and I I thought she's been out, you know, cutting the rug somewhere at a nightclub and she says, no, I've been working. Um, so I appreciate your time. Uh, where do you want to start in your... your and it's, it's not... I mean, people sort of often confuse me using the word regenerative because I'm a farmer and I talk to farmers um, and lots of other people. It's just wherever... It's, it's just the development of your life and sort of where it sort of led to. Where do you want to start when you were, when you were little, when you were born? Where were you born? I was born in England um, on, on the seaside uh, near a, a famous, famous place called Margate, which was a day-tripper haven. Um, and it was idyllic. I mean, I literally was brought up in a place where people went on holiday. And it was... In fact, that was the beginning of the journey. I didn't know it because I was convinced I was going to be a vet and I really wanted to be the person who came and looked after animals. I was completely committed to that. Then the sea kind of took over and I became you know, an avid sailor, delivering yachts and things around the world and spending all my time there and actually going to university to study the oceans. But that kind of circularity in life I found fascinating because here I am long, long time after, six, seven decades, finding myself actually with uh, a farm in front of me, not, not from my family, but now by my family, by, by marriage, full of incredible people who are young and will want to repeat that same thing. And just now, this is in the, in the Maasai in Kenya, a few young people saying for the first time in their lives when they've gone to school, having a career as opposed to being in the bush, and one or two of them saying, I'd love to be a vet because I love the animals that I look after every day. And it really reminds me of what I was like when I was six years old. So you've jumped right ahead there, which is great because we haven't got much time. <laughs> so early childhood, um, wanting to be a vet, so love of animals obviously clearly back then. Was there any sort of, um, did you even give it a crack? Did you sort of do any, any vet sort of studies and then go, no, actually this is not, not for me? Was there sort of no, any I went departures? To people. From- I went to people. <laughs> I started out in, in medicine. Um, but even then I, I was really much more interested in research I loved, you know, learning about how to take care of people and, and it went in absolutely and I absorbed it. And in fact, I do look after a lot of people in the village where I live. But I was always near animals. I was either staying as a student on a farm or wherever I lived, I was always in the countryside. I have a, a beautiful home in the depths of the countryside in, in England, surrounded by sheep. Um, so I think somehow deeply I've always put myself near to animals, always, whether it's wild animals or whether it's domesticated, because I just think they're part of my sentient being and and I need that kind of additional 
thinking, I guess, animal senses around you are incredibly important. Totally. And there's a lot of that yesterday, wasn't there? The, the, um, uh, John Kempf talked about it. I mean, everyone, obviously, in, in uh, the conference that, who spoke was talking about animals and their integration to the environment and their importance and and that sort of, um, uh, you know, the the many levels of intelligence that, that, you know, and they often, they're great reminders of our, I don't know, how that we should be a bit more humble and we probably generally are as a, should be, you know, we are as a race, I think. And I think it extends to plants, which was the other surprise for a lot of people, I think, in the, in the meeting, was actually plants not officially recorded to have sentient beings. But again, I, I've never... For me, it's always been a continuum. I've never really felt that there is this division because in the end, when we die, you know, our molecules get redistributed. Who knows how we come back? You know, I'm, I'm hoping to come back as a lion. You never know. But it might be <laughs> via, it might be via a few plants. It could very well be via a few plants, exactly. <laughs> so you know, make sure you, you you live a good life, so that if you were to leave it in a in a hurry, you'll be very close to where you might want to come back. <laughs> Put the intention out there now. I love that line. Tell me how um, how did you get to. Um, be in the Maasai like how did that I mean there's, and you actually now let's talk about endurance running that's I don't know where even that, how we're even going to fit that in but where, tell me about that bit like you because that's obviously well not obviously is it a um, it was not your career or it might have been your career but in terms of um, was it more of a hobby or just an interest you know or was it actually something you did and you were involved in that, in that world a lot because no, I, I'm, I'm trying to reconcile that with everything we heard the other day um, I've always been passionate about sport and, and that, you know, I sailed competitively. Um, I, I just love being part of a team or doing sport. I, and I do record having a lot of pleasure in being, in a sense, a, 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 a lone walker, a lone runner. I would never do that now, but anyway. No, the reason I got into that kind of running was completely uh, surprising. I was running the European Environment Agency that for 10 years out of Copenhagen and part of my duties were to go to the Arctic to work in Greenland to work with the people there helping them with their waste all kinds of things but I was really woken up when I met a West Greenlandic um, guide and he took me up onto the ice cap and said I go up onto the ice cap now and it's melting everywhere there's water everywhere and it's like the melting of my heart when I see the ice disappearing and whilst I was there, I met a group of people who put on something called the Arctic Challenge. If you know Iron Man, times five, and you've just about got there, because it's the most ridiculous race. Um, you essentially have to scale a peak of a 1,000 feet in the first day. You have to kayak across an icy fjord. You have to cycle 36 kilometers over boulders. You then have to run... No, you then, then canoe 70 kilometers via various fjords and melting um, ice. And then you run for three days for about 240 kilometers. It's ridiculous. Anyway. For, um, for fun. <laughs> yes, but I did it because I made a film and I decided that the only way to make the message of climate change real was to make really out-of-the-box films. And so I started making films when I was at the agency to create a different kind of narrative, whether it was little snippets on airplanes, feature films, or whatever. And... Um, we made it for a sports channel, and it was just... What was it called? 
Uh, I'll put it in the show notes. Okay. <laughs> Our Arctic Challenge. Cool. Really, really novel title. <laughs> <laughs> but what people don't really understand if you've never lived with Scandinavians is that they all somehow deep in their hearts want to be Fridtjof Nansen. They want to be that person who crosses the ice cap. And it's a very bleak and desolate place until you really come to know it and you, know, you see animals, Arctic foxes and so on. So we decided that uh, we would, as an agency, put together a couple of teams. So we trained intensively. And this is where it comes crazy because Den Den Denmark, the highest part of Denmark is about 400 feet and we were going to scale mountains. So how do you train? Mm -hmm. Well, you train in the fire tower, up and down the stairs, up and down the stairs, getting fit. So when I asked in the agency who would like to do this race with me, I swear everybody in the room put their hands up wow. because it was their passion, their dream, that they would actually go out onto the ice cap and do something very Nordic. So we trained for, for a year, and I learned some amazing life skills. The first one is that if you're going to run in an endurance race as a team, you can only go where everybody goes. There is no person out front, and you will not make it. So if there's four of you running or kayaking or whatever, you all have to do it together. So skill, life skill number one, you go as a team. Damn. And I found myself hearing that same thing in Africa, where I live now. If you want to go, if you want to go quickly, go on your own. If you want to go far, go with many. So the race itself was just fabulous. I mean, a spectacular backdrop. But it began with the most ridiculous thing where our kayak tipped over in the fjord in front of everybody and the television cameras. And that was a really good start. So everyone else was sort of running just to complete this, but we were filming as well. And occasionally they would say, could we just do that again? <laughs> You just walked up. Can you not say that? You know, you've just climbed up a glacier. <laughs> it's three thousand meters, and you and do it again. Was it a was it just a was it was a, uh, a race or was yes. this more like just finish? No, no, it was, it was a race. race. So teams time. racing. Yeah. To, cool. And so there you are, just had to go and do that bit again. It's like, no, hang on, I'm going to lose. <laughs> no. But we had a we sort of had a slightly awkward accident on the way out when a big boulder came down. It's a very dangerous environment, and a boulder fell on one of the team and took the top of his finger off. So there's a lot of blood everywhere, but there was the odd doctor in some of the teams and so they get do they get that on camera they go yes. sorry missed that can it, you just it, it is in the film <laughs> that one is in the film awesome. anyway so so you know obviously we we we, we finished it we completed it and the, and the film went out but I, I think overall what i learned from that is that you can tell stories in spectacular ways but you can tell stories in these little tiny ways and in fact the scene where the doctor from another team stops their race to come over and help us and get the top of the finger back on. Very Dane, a very Dutch lady, she said, oh, he's brave, he'll, he'll make it, you know. <laughs> but he put a plastic bag over his hand, he was, come, he, he was brought back by helicopter and he carried on with the race. No. Mm, it was, it was really they, amazing. The, so they just, the end of the finger was gone. Gone, gone. And he's a, he was a mandolin player. Oh no! Mm, so but he's still, with, he has yeah. a metal tube that he puts over the top of his finger. <laughs> he's got a little metal. Oh, good on him! Wow, incredible. Looking for more information to assist your regenerative journey? Come join Charlie and his guests around the kitchen table, an online community of supporters with exclusive access to the regenerative journey interview transcripts, live online Q and A sessions a chance to engage with other like-minded people and more. Go to www.charliearnett.com.au forward slash the kitchen table. 
And if you're not totally satisfied with the value of your membership and wish to cancel it within the first two months, we will give you a full 100% refund, no questions asked. Now let's get back to this week's episode. Um, so you finished the rise? Yeah, and the, life, the second life skill I learned was how to, literally how to sleep anywhere. Best skill in my life. So the trainer who said, when you're running for three days without stopping, you sleep as a team. So instantly someone feels tired, everybody drops to the ground. And we learned how to go into that deep, deep sleep instantly. Sleep for 15 minutes, wake up, run again. That must be a, 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 a mental, it's obviously a mental thing. Like you've got to get yes. in the zone and just off. Yes, yes. And it's been amazing because now I can get on an airplane, I can go to a noisy train station, go anywhere, and I can sleep instantly for 15 minutes. Is, it, is 15 kind of your cap? Is it just like your little 15? Is, is that your little internal years. alarm goes off? 15? Yeah, absolutely. And you get up and you feel like you've slept for six or seven hours. I have little um, power kips at, at home at the farm, you know, like especially in summer, it's like lie down a, on a hard surface. You just go, Psh. But that's in the morning after lunch and kind of you, your body's like ready for a little kip up. That's incredible. Anyway, yes, little, little sleeps are brilliant for your body. And of course, now everyone is recovering and, and understanding that this hectic life we had, COVID kind of took the, it kind of took the reins off a little bit, the brakes off. And I think people have understood that when your body needs you to do something, you need to sort of get out of whatever it is, take a break and you become more powerful. There's no doubt. And is there a third life skill you learned? I think the third life skill was um, not only humbleness, but just the sense that when you're in a landscape that is so massive, and you have it here in Australia, you, you, you go, you know, your skies are big, the horizons are, feel like they're endless. When you're in those big landscapes, it is at the one time very humbling, but at the second time you realise how precious the planet is. And to see very sadly how climate change had already taken root up there and we were experiencing temperatures of 20 degrees centigrade on an ice cap, it, it's, it's heartbreaking, but it's awe-inspiring. And to have a piece of ice that you know was laid down 200,000 years ago sort of puts life in context. And, it being, and, and I guess understanding that that chunk that may be just there um, is melting and it's the first time it's been melted yeah. in that long. That's incredible. Yeah, they call it black ice and mm. people go up there with, you know, the odd whiskey bottle and if you put a piece of the ice into the whiskey you hear this hissing and cracking as the ice breaks up and you know that that was the atmosphere of 200,000 years ago. That little bit of gas is mm. escaping. Yeah. That's a bit rude to be putting ice oh, ice into scotch, isn't it? Is well, that, is I think that, it's If you're a, a true Scotchman. Yeah, yeah, but it's, it's a, trick, a trick, yes. So you hear it. <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible. Tell me how, um, we're, we're certainly in the environment zone here now, like in, in, in your story, how did you go from sailing, which is obviously a type of environment and, and maybe was more not so much hobby and you're, you said you are racing, mm. so sport, how did you, were you already in the environmental sort of um, space, the sort of advocacy space and the climate change kind of let's get uh, shit together kind of? Yeah, how, I, how did you transition or were you just doing it? No, I mean, I think pretty early on I realised that I was going to always be wanting to do things like ecology and so on. So I, I brought together in my own funny way um, training in sort of mathematics, in ecology and biochemistry and soil science and geology. So I packed all of that together um, and I went into a period of time where I studied uh, in America, in Canada, where I looked at... Um, 
a, a really beautiful fish. It's a salmon. Uh, it's a salmon, salmonid. It's called a brook trout. I fished for <clears throat> I fished for two years out in the wilds of Canada. What have you done? It was the most amazing thing with a wonderful guide, an Inuit guide, and um, it was again breathtaking. The places I was allowed to go and see and and be. And I, I mean, I found myself in Oregon as the mountain exploded, you know, collecting the last few fish from there and so on. But I met people who were literally not distinct from nature. They, they were so deeply embedded in nature. And I think overall you would see that continuum everywhere, when, wherever I went. And it took me on a career path which was completely unpredictable. I never really planned a career That wasn't all. my question. Did you plan any of this or just sort of like ended up going from here to there and then... I your... just literally moved through the, through the world in, in funny ways and always ended up in places where people helped and opened themselves up. So my PhD was very much around uh, a sort of cutting-edge piece of science, which was the molecular clock. And in those days, we hadn't really cottoned on how we could use science to tell us the speed of evolution, the speed of change. And this little fish, which people love for sport, and it's, a, it's gorgeous, it's got a flash of white along the edges of the, of the dorsal fins, so when you see it in the water, it just skits through, you know. And this little fish was part of a big family of all the salmon, and they had done something remarkable, which was they had doubled their genome at one point in history. So they still got a spare copy. Practice doing weird things. With. Is that is that a is that a one is that is any is any anything else done that that we we know of? But there's a few sort of amphibian, but this tetraploidy mm. meant that you could see salmon doing crazy things like developing antifreeze, so they can go into icy waters and all kinds, going from fresh water to seawater and back. Mm. So we think that having that extra copy allowed them to develop all kinds of adaptations. And from that, we could then work out the molecular clock because you had fish that were essentially evolving new attributes in a way that you could monitor. So it was just really fascinating. And from that, I then was offered a really amazing job in the Canadian federal government, uh, became a scientist, and then I went to sea for years. Um, and I was in, uh, for example, I was at sea when the perfect storm hit. I was actually at sea. It was the craziest storm I've ever been in. Where, where was that? Well, I know there's off a, there's off a... the east coast of um, uh, America and Canada, all the way along the kind of George's Bank, the shelf that goes out to the, out to the continental strip. Where was so that? I was, it must have been in the 80s. I can't remember the exact date. Yeah, I should no, no. know. It's imprinted yeah. on my mind. Yeah. Um, and we were out there doing research. So I was collecting fish and doing that. And I had a crazy idea that satellites had just begun to be talked about. And I was lucky enough to be asked to co-chair the beginnings of America's Canadians' interaction and collaboration on launching satellites with Landsat, NASA, and so on. And I had an idea that we could use satellites to track things in the ocean, which we could, these sort of gyres, they're like, you know, swirling eddies. And I thought, this little fish that I'm studying, Pollock now, I'm offshore, um, it, it has its babies, it has eggs out in the ocean. And then some years it's successful, some years it's not. And the fishermen were, I guess, not perplexed, but they were never able to predict whether the next year was going to be a good fishery or not. And I thought, well, what's the biggest thing that's affecting them? And it's clearly the ocean. And I had this idea that the eddies, as they spiral offshore or onshore, were the determinants of whether these fish were going to survive. 
So I remember going to my bosses saying, I'd like to go to sea and I'd like to track these eddies in the middle of the winter in the North Atlantic. Can I have a ship, please? And they, yes, please, have a crew, have a ship. Have a few crew. And off we went. And they, were all, and the crew was, they were all fishermen and they were very sceptical. Like, what is this crazy woman doing? Um, but they spoke deep, deep accent from Yorkshire. So I was the interpreter for the rest of the people on the ship for the North Americans. They couldn't understand anything. And I kept saying, no, 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 we have to go. So we went out, and I had satellite picture, one of the only ones that was available at the time. And I said, right, we're going to go there, and we're going to go track. And if my theory is right, we're going to find loads of little baby fish inside this eddy. Anyway, we let the nets down, and sure enough, that's where they were. Uh, so it became one of the sort of strongest predictors of one of the most uncertain parts of the marine fishery. So, yeah, it was, it was amazing. And then you're out there, then the storm hit? Yes, and I didn't really realise, as the boat was almost vertical, this is a big, big fishing boat. This is a massive fishing boat. These are not the ones which actually suffered the most from the storm, where people were... They made a film about it and so on. So, OK, that was the one. That was the one. And oh we hadn't... I know, and we hadn't... We hadn't time to get back in shore. We were stuck off on the edges of the bank. And, I mean, to the skill of the captain, there's no doubt about it, but it was probably... I think the crew thought we were going to die from seasickness, from, from everything. It was just awful. And there was a moment when the ship was, I swear, almost vertical. And what, how, long that, how long did that last? You, you, we, during that? In, for, for, we actually didn't get back to shore for another two weeks, two and a half weeks. Are you serious? Mm, we were taken offshore and we, we just, you couldn't get away from it. It was You were stuck in it literally, until it passed? Literally. No, oh no ship was powerful enough to get out of it. But we didn't realise at the time, it was only when we got back that we sort of saw all the, all the headlines and the news and everything else, yeah. So My goodness. And, and so did that, did that put you off going back? No, no, no. I had lived by the sea and I'd always sailed boats and I'd had various boats sink under me and a few other things. So in my lifetime, I'd, I'd been sort of marooned. And it was very, very obvious that, uh, you know, treat the sea with great respect. But I think back then it was something that flipped in my head, which is you really don't know when you're going to die. You really simply don't know. Nature can just come and get you at some point. And here I am, you know, several decades later, living in a tribe who essentially people don't fear death. They really do not. And when, you, when you're with people who have that um, attitude or, or approach to life, you realise that there's an enormous weight taken off your shoulders because if you're not preoccupied with death... You just accept that when it comes, it comes, and it's part of that huge picture in which we live. Then it frees and liberates you to do things, maybe to be more adventurous, maybe to be more inquiring, um, but it certainly is a very deep, deep, deep thing. And it's, I dare I say, it's probably a celebrate, not well, celebrated. It's not like a, um, it's obviously mourning, but is there some, it's cause for celebration as well, I imagine. Yes, and, and I mean, it may sound very callous to, to those outside, but until very recently, and in fact, it still happens in, in many parts of the, of the Maasai and, and other tribal communities. When you die, your, your body is kind of, that's it. It's lived out its life and you don't need it anymore. So there, the body is covered in an oil and put outside of the, the village uh, for the animals to take. Really? Because mm, your spirit is, in a sense, there in the village 
and the body is simply the, the <clears throat> vessel which you lived your life through. Well, I guess the, the body's been, and, and the, the, the person has utilised and lived within nature for their whole life, and so it's, it's just the circle of life, isn't it? It's the giving back, it's the offering, and, you know, here I am, take me. Yeah, and it's a very powerful, um, it's a powerful driver for good, um, it's very much a case of the body is sometimes recognized to be the weak link. So you're asked to forgive and to forgive again and to forgive again and then to forgive one more time if somebody transgresses or does something really irritating. And I think, again, that, treat, that treatment of individuals with huge patience and with a long wisdom has taught me an enormous amount of humility um, it's a wisdom and knowledge that, that has come through just literally being invited in to stay in, in my sort of last part of my life, maybe, it, with a group of people who have just lived a totally different life to the one that I have had um, prior to that. How did you, I've got to ask, how, you, how, how did that happen? How did you get to be there? How did you then get to marry into that, that situation? I was working at the UN. I was the chief scientist in, in environment, um, duty stationed in Nairobi, so off I went. So when I, w- I was working in the European Environment Agency in Copenhagen, that came to an end. Um, sadly, I sort of nursed my brother to his, his last days with cancer. And then I sort of looked up and thought, right, what am I going to do? Um, and this, this opportunity came up, so I thought, right, well, off we go to Nairobi. And I uh, started this odyssey of... Very, very high-end science, of course, where you network with thousands of brilliant people, um, bringing them together, creating you know the next most uncomfortable piece of um, evidence gathering and so on, and putting it in front of policymakers. But as I was there, you can't help but realise that you're surrounded by the most beautiful country in which there are still people who are from that land. They've never left. They are tribes people from there. They're not necessarily called indigenous because there's no one has taken their place. So there is far less of a, distrim- a sort of discrimination between those who were there before and those who came afterwards. Everybody came from there. So no one gets special pleading, so to speak, except for one small group called the Ogiek. And I had a, a wonderful staff, and they had a huge, you know, sort of enjoyment of life. And they would often go down to go on safaris. And one of them did, um, met the Maasai, and came back one day and said, oh, could, could we have a Friday seminar on how the Maasai live? And I said, yeah, yeah, that's fine. So unbeknownst to me, a small group of warriors took the trouble to come up to Nairobi the first time they'd left. How, how far? How far was that? Like, in those like days, a, it was a long way, sort of like eight, nine hours of on a on a matata, on a bus, um, walking quite a few weeks. But anyway, which they regularly did. So they arrived at the UN. You can imagine it with spears and those. So the arrows, first time at Nairobi, first time in kind of dare I say no. their lifetimes. Yeah, right. Well, they never yeah, left. They were saying like, "Where are the cows? Where's the grass? <laughs> <laughs> like, what, what is this place? What, are these <laughs> what is this place? boxes? Mm, exactly. Wow, that's courageous. And so, yeah, very. Courageous, but they're warriors, you know. They can have that, <laughs> and so they, you know, it's like they knock on the door. Oh, we, you know, we're here to see um, th- this young man. So we, they came for that day, and we had to have interpreters. And I had a couple of Maasai on my staff, so they they did interpretation, and they told us about this amazing life. And I didn't really think very much more of it. But what I didn't know was my future husband actually saw me in the room, and he was convinced that I was the person he'd dreamed about when he was 10 years old that he was going to marry 
But his father was a very, he was also a chief, and they said, there's no way that you're ever going to marry a Mzungu, a white woman. You are a Maasai, you don't do that. So roll forward several decades, and there he was. So he went away and told everyone he's going to get married to me, except he didn't tell me. So he, <laughs> he told all his mates. He told everybody, and so there was a battle because a lot of the people didn't want him to marry a Mzungu. When you say battle, is it a verbal battle? Is it no, a physical no, no. battle? Swords. Really? Mm, bows and arrows. So, yeah, so when you say use the word warrior, so warrior warring, so there was still warring going on. That was part of the culture. The culture is that you, you don't, they're extraordinarily peace loving people. But come and take their cattle? Mm, forget it. You know, you are up against it. And there's a kind of honour in protection. And a warrior class, if you live amongst warriors, their first duty is to protect people, family, animals. It's, it's, uh, it's written throughout them and their history and so on. But they have very, very strict stages in their life journey. So as a young man, you would be circumcised and you would go in the bush for maybe eight, eight years and you would have survived. The you, bravest becomes the chief. You go into the bush with others? Like yes, your, you go your as a, peers. Uh, with, a, with men of the age class, yes. And that's all, all the part of rite of passage? Kind of Absolutely, stuff. and it's a deep rite of passage which sees them through to the end of their days. And Sorry, then they go, at what age do they then you know, leave mum and go out into the bush? Well, they're about 15 years old, 15, 16. Okay, so that's... My husband went out much earlier. I think he went out when he was, was about 13 so you you know they're young people and eight years out there yeah they they don't we don't do it now i mean they we keep them and they go through education but they they desperately yearn to go and make this rite of passage so we will we we organize that to happen and in that period it's not that they don't have family ties but these ties the age class tie is the one that the men need that the women need and with that, it's like you go through life with a group of people who are bound to you by blood. And they choose amongst themselves, depending on your behavior. And this is the other thing the Maasai show you, is that you are judged by your behavior to others. You get a name. If you come in as a woman and you're married, you don't get given a name until maybe a year. And they watch and they look and they decide what is the name that you deserve to have. So it's it's a very appealing. I got Nasserian. I got Nasserian, Nasserian Oleratura. Nasserian means bridge builder, the, the finder of peace. So uh, yeah, and, and so there was a huge ceremony when when um, Pastor Patrick, my husband, was to be made the chief, and I was invited to that. And so you know, it's a sort of young person. He's coming to get married. He's coming to, get, to become the chief. And so we arrived, myself and three others from the UN, and there were thousands of people there, like old men, elders, ladies, everybody. Um, they were drinking mead, one percent. They were completely drunk. I think they never have alcohol, so this was all a bit too much. <laughs> Wonderful food. Food, um, you know, meat and so what they call soup and so on, lots of herbs and that. And at the end of it, there was a ceremony where milk was shoved around and shaken around. And I asked the interpreter what it was, and he said, "This is where you, as the betrothed, say yes." I went, "What?" 
oh, oh me, oh me, I'm going to get, oh, okay. Because it had all, be, all been a secret to this point, or not a secret. Not a secret. Been... They all thought I knew. Yeah, yeah. But they forgot that I didn't speak. I didn't speak the language. Nobody spoke Ma. Had you got a house. hint though? Had you no, kind of zero? Really? Mm-mm-mm. You sort of. He's one of. He's a nice guy. He's part of the group, and he's. Well, I knew you know, he's he'd become the chief. The chief. Yeah. That's yes. right. But you weren't like you know sweet on him at the. No, he's just a nice person. You know. <laughs> oh my God! Yeah. So uh, yes, yeah, so <laughs> I thought. I looked at my colleagues and I said, "It's not the time to say no." There's a lot of people here with a lot of weapons, so let's not say no. So I sort of said, "Oh right, okay." And off we and they come out with a beautiful wedding collar, which the ladies had been making for the several months and so on. Can I ask what age you were, just to put that your life into context? There? Oh, this was just eight years ago. Wedding. I was a young woman. No, I wasn't. I was very. No, old. you are. That's amazing. Yeah. Anyway, I went back to Nairobi thinking I could just sweep it under the carpet. <laughs> Forget that. So the tribes have this so, sorry, sorry, so, communication. So you said y- yes. Well, I didn't really say anything. I went, uh-huh. And then I accepted the wedding collar as these ladies rushed out to put it over my head. It's a beautiful Maasai, huge kind of thing that they had woven with cowries and so on. Absolutely gorgeous. Um, so, yes, I arrived back in Nairobi wearing it, in fact. So you, you left him. I had to That afternoon I had to leave, go on an airplane, go back to work. And, uh, yes, and I arrived at the UN and the, all of the Maasai and the tribes were waiting, sort of ululating, waiting for me to come. And I came and they said, congratulations, we now understand that you're part of the Maasai tribe. Ay, 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 ay. And it was pretty serious. Mm, yes, so I called my daughters, you know. I think I just got married in a ceremony that I didn't quite know what I was doing. <laughs> to which they said, that is so typical. You just go off to these places. Mum. Go to the Arctic. You go to these weird places and you do things. Ay, ay, ay. Anyway. Because I think you were joking. It's uh, like one more of Mum's crazy antics. Yeah, so, no, I think they, 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 they've got over shock. You know, <laughs> they're adults. But anyway, it's led to the most wonderful life. And uh, we built a new village. We had There's so many things that we've had to do. So I live actually in a mud hut in a village which we built but I put um, electricity in we have a everyone has a light bulb in their house four light bulbs in their houses inverters I brought water from the mountain uh, down into the village so we, we became a village that is now known where people say you smell as sweet as someone from Wangan which is the name of the village because we wash and we have water clean water and so on so what did they obviously um uh were happy to do that. That was uh, they accepted. I no, guess the he, battle meant that once it was decided, then that's one of the things you realise. They live in a, there's a, this society is one where ultimate decisions, when made by elders and chiefs, are abided by by everybody. Everyone. When the black stick goes, that's it. So was he injured at all in that? No, process? no, no, no. They're all they were all fine. They're all fine. But mm. but but there was clearly a point at which he had won. So oh to yes, speak. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Wow. When are you writing a book? Have you got a book? <laughs> no. Can you write a book? <laughs> really? No. This is fascinating. This is incredible. So surely I'm not the first who's asked you no, to put it I, on paper. No, I've made a few radio programs, but yeah, no, I haven't done anything else. Okay, well, you better get back in. We better start writing that book. <laughs> um, so tell me. So that was um, yeah. So that was. I mean, there might be. A general acceptance of of you and kind of and and, and the rules, so to speak, or the, um, the that whatever you and he does goes. Do you, it was, was that embraced? Was it was completely? It, yeah. Well, okay. again, it's one of those things. If a decision is made, that's it. Mm, so get on with I, it. Yeah. So then I, I became part of the village, and what I discovered is that 
I brought with me, you know, if you're a chief scientist in the UN and you're building intelligent systems, you know, and you're, sh and you're launching satellites and you're doing all this kind of science, then your head is packed. My head was packed with science from maths all the way through. Um, I was involved in, in many space missions and you're advising the, the European Space Agency and so on. So I sort of saw planet Earth from up there, from right below the ground. But now here I was on a daily basis with animals, with a lot of land, with people, and no money, literally zero money. N none of this dollar a day. There is no money down there at all. And your bank account are the animals that are standing in the field next to you. That's the, that's the economy. Yeah, totally. And, and it is totally an economy of barter and exchange. And when you need to be married or you have a dowry and so on, there's no cash. It's all around that. So people have a long, long memory. And suddenly someone would turn up in the village and say with a cow and oh, where's that come from and they said well you know your father's father lent my father a cow several generations ago and we've just been able now to have enough to bring it back it's very honourable isn't it wow and it's how they remember their family lines everyone knows who can get married to whom and there's thousands of people in these sort of hierarchies of family trees so the science part of me I love this because it brought me right back down to real life which was dealing with animals every day in their absolute native environment, being surrounded by wildlife, which people say, you know, they spend thousands of dollars to come and see, you know, the big five. Um, they were my neighbours at night. But living with people who'd got incredible sense of hearing, of smell, of sight. You know, I was the only one with glasses. I was the only one that could write. So I first, when I finished my mud hut, I wrote my name on the door, on the mud, and Asaria next to it. And they all said, what's that? And I said, oh, this is writing. Mm. So, you know, you... So there, there is no writing in the No, culture. no, and it's all oral and so on. So oh. every day there was something new. And yet, these were the people four years later when I was running big research programs with, with all of the warriors and the tribes across the area, where I brought very, very, I mean, leading botanists to come with me into the forest. And the warriors, we built sort of apps on phones where they would collect information on all the trees and so on. And they would be pointing out all these different species and the botanist next to me from Kew would say, I've never seen this species before. Um, and they were, they were astounded by the depths of knowledge which they all have, the warriors, the ladies and so on. Passed down. Passed down, lived, used, mm. um, plants that would do this, plant that would do that, um, this is for wounds, this is for this and that. So having had training as a medic, it literally all came together. And so we created a large forest behind the village of medicinal trees, medicinal plants. Wow, the, hosp the hospital. Yeah, the, it's literally the hospital village, uh, wow. the hospital forest, yeah. Wow. Let's jump, I'm conscious of time, let's jump to frugal abundance. A fascinating um, phrase that you <clears throat> talked about on Saturday, a couple of days ago now. Um, <clears throat> when I saw it, I think I went, oh, I can't get my head around that. I thought maybe you were Scottish firstly because it was frugal because we all this Australia. I'm, I'm a Scottish descendant. I'm sort of 13 plus um, generational Scottish farmers. Tell me about that. I think the juxtaposition of a word like frugal and then abundance already gets people thinking, what is that all about? But if you pare back the word frugal, mostly it's about living well and wisely, without excess, with no waste, and 
don't forget, I've spent sort of 20, 20, 30 years of my life by now thinking, how do we get people not to create so much waste, how to change the consumption patterns? So frugality had a sense of pride about it until more recently. And yet, when you live amongst people who have nothing and you visit and observe, I guess, people living in the Arctic and people in the rural areas, often they feel that they are surrounded by riches. They actually don't feel poor. Um, it's, only, it's only the exposure to a modern economy with a GDP driver where they feel somehow diminished. But if you were to take away, not take away money as per se, but take away that drive for consumption and production and so on, then you have those people who are the richest probably on planet Earth, and farmers are amongst that group. And I, I often worry where I see farmers um, right at the edge of their ability to go forward because they're not profitable, but they can't wrench themselves away from a life of being a farmer, of bringing life to the world, of, of producing food and so on. So that, that sort of weird irony of being rich yet being poor I was searching for a phrase, and in fact, it was one of my PhD students who came up with it. He's a he's a Frenchman, and we were trying to find a translation. And this was a this was it. This is the poor shorthand of it. But the more I use it, the more I realise it. It makes people wake up because they want to understand where this has come from. And I like it because it talks of um, a sense of purpose and a sense of individual pride but realizing in the end that you can't have frugal abundance without being in a community you can never you can't unless you want to be an ascetic and go and live on an island on your own which few of us have the ability to do you're only going to arrive at frugal abundance where you can barter where when you're short of something you can go to your neighbor and say can i borrow or where i can give a cow because my grandfather was given a cow 20 30 maybe even 70 100 years ago and so it's that longevity of memory. And I love it because when you start to go behind the scenes around frugal abundance and you start to think about plants and planet Earth, that idea of intergenerational uh, living comes through. And when I work in, I used to do a lot of work on forests and measuring the memory of forests. So you can go to some forests and there's a mosaic cycle that takes 500 years. And you can go to a place and the tree will no longer be there, but for 500 years, if you go below ground and you look at the fungi and the bacteria and so on, you will find all the hallmarks of that particular tree species having grown there. So, you know, nobody told the fungi and the bacteria that the tree had gone. They just kept on growing. <laughs> so the fungi below world has always fascinated me. And they, this worldwide wood, wood as we call it, um, has really, I think, captured people's imaginations very recently because they are the, they're the unsung heroes in many people's minds that they have created a world of frugal abundance in their own sense. And they direct, they direct us and they direct organisms like insects to go get food for them and, and change and move and so on. So for me, it's an interweaving, the frugal abundance of humans with planet Earth. And it's fit for purpose. I mean, you can take this to market any day. And you can make a profit if you need to. And how what examples of sort of us as, as humans and operating in the world of, that we little tips and tricks about, you know, um, frugal abundance, how can we apply that to our lives? Well, maybe as farmers, perhaps. 
I think what we saw this weekend, particularly in the RCS conference, was a sense of people striving for that level of abundance which came not just from um, sort of a a universal, um, a a unique and one-only solution to the problem. So abundance comes when you're looking, let's say you're very hungry and you're looking for food and you go foraging, you will find everything around you. And it's whether you want to then play that out in terms of people. So I'm, you know, I'm quite well known for just stopping in the street and asking people, you know, like, do you need anything today? Can I help you? (laughs) And people come back with the most amazing things. So I think how you live every day is one as if you, we have riches because we breathe. If we breathe clean air, it's amazing. But being aware of that and... It's not so much just thanking God or whoever you believe in or whatever, whatever your life force is, but it's recognizing how privileged we are. And it comes back to what I said at the beginning. If you don't fear death, you live every day in a very different way. And you're probably going to live a short, a short life too, I imagine. Um, you also touched on, Jacqueline, the other day, the first thousand days. Can mm-hmm. we talk about that? I think as an intellectual, the first thousand days has always struck me as being the most underrated driver of human evolution because in the first thousand days as a child, you develop your cognitive powers, you develop your executive powers, the things that will help you make wise decisions. And I'm not saying they're all biochemical, but there's a lot of biochemistry that's going on. So you need your brain, that bit of your brain, to work very well as an adult. It's what curtails anger, It's what curtails a lot of negative things that happen in people's lives where they can't feel control over what's happening to them, that sense of helplessness. And if you don't have a good set of core functions in your brain, you can't lift yourself out of it. And that all happens in the first thousand days. So if you live amongst people who are poorly nourished for whatever reason, in refugee camps, wherever, in the UN I saw this uh, again and again and again, I realise that unless you invest in those young people, they will all grow up to be adults who don't have that capacity. And you only have to look forward to acts of terrorism, to acts of uh, suddenly an eruption in an election period where you know young people are out on the streets and then it turns to violence. And you think, well, OK, maybe people are being stirred up or they're being given some money. But there is a sense, when you look at crowds, and I studied crowds a lot, where the sense of panic spreads rapidly and what that is is that people have not got the self-awareness and the capacity to control what's happening around them and they give way to this huge sense of panic but if you have a sense of being able to manage a local situation it doesn't get out of hand and that's what we're creating we're creating millions and millions and millions of young people who have unfortunately lost that capacity so we have trouble on our hands. How do we <clears throat> how do we intervene? Like I mean, I guess is it is it is it that so that first thousand days and then it's the first five thousand days, you know, and there's still the same levels of nutrition and experiences they have, and then that's a generation potentially or a part of a generation that is um, troubled mm-hmm. and 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 get into trouble. Yeah. Is there, what do we do? I mean, is there is an inter- intervention? Is it just like, oh, we just have to kind of write them off and hope the next generation? But then I would imagine that if children are, 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 you know, are growing up in those households or those situations with mum and dad doing whatever, you know, that kind of a, that, that's, that's, that's the new normal, then how well, do we get around that? 
Well, first of all, we have to recognise that our penal systems around the world are, are just addressing, they're addressing the wrong thing. We're, we've, we've addressed it long after the problem started. Well, they're making a lot of, some people a lot of money, though, too, aren't they? And, and, and contributing to GDP. Oh, yes, that's that, that great <laughs> GDP driver. For me, it's about understanding much more about how brains work, how our bodies work, and understanding that nutritious food is so vital to keeping all of us, but certainly young people who haven't had that level of um, biochemical stimulation on the good side from great food, there are some indications that, in fact, you can reverse it. And those of you who've maybe taken on a skill later in life, I learned and I became a pilot much later in life when I was in my 40s, sort of flying airplanes. And I actually found during the training that my brain rewired itself. It was quite extraordinary. I mean, my brain hurt when I learned to be a pilot and I felt that new things were happening, new avenues were opening up, new networks. So I think it is possible to retrain someone's brain and if you can do that, then you can certainly go to the core of that problem through nutrition and through training. But it's a very different thing than punishing someone and putting them behind bars and taking away that stimulation. It's a pretty terminal thing, isn't it? Mm. Like, just like, well, you're going to be in prison for the rest of your life, or even if you get out, what hope is there for you? Yeah, yeah. Um, what else did I have here? Uh, you were, oh, what's your genius, do you think? If you were to sort of explain your genius. I think the only thing, well, I wouldn't claim to and be. Don't, and don't try and be all humble about it. Like, just, you know, no, no one's going to listen to this anyway. So, sorry, <laughs> I think my, my genius is probably two things. It comes from the same centre piece of it, which is I really, I really like people. I like getting on with people and I like networking. I think what I can do is I can see, the, I can see that glint of the genius in others. And I've never been frightened by genius. And unlike many people, you know, I, I love it. I love to be surrounded by people who are very clever. And I mean clever in the sense of not just intellectual, I mean into emotional intelligence, all of that. And through being exposed to people of great genius, I mean, which is very humbling, I can still contribute something by opening up spaces where they can live and, and participate and bring around great things in the world and solve some of the biggest biggest challenges that we have um, and in my latest kind of activity I guess I created a company I co-founded a company when I left the UN I realized that the planet needed urgent attention which the governments are going there but they have to bring a lot with them um, but we needed to be more nimble with new kinds of solutions so I put together everything I'd learned over the last uh, 30 40 years of working sort of very much amongst people who are brilliant and geniuses and said, okay, how are we going to do this? And the first thing we want to do is restore the, the earth, restore the soil. So talking to microbiologists and mathematicians over the last few years, I realised that we, have a, we had an opportunity, a golden opportunity, by generally creating what was, what's now it's called, it's got a buzzword, it's called a digital twin. So we would be able to do more than just simply tinker at the edges, but go to the very root of what is making the planet work in a way that we can freeload on it and help ourselves by helping the planet help us 
And so that's when all of my life's work and training have come together, from biochemistry to soils to mathematics to earth sciences to people to animals to plants. All of it sort of comes together in this in this startup company, which sounds ironic, but it really does. Downforce, yeah. Downforce, and I and I've been so lucky. You know, I pick up the phone and I talk to you know the world's best plant biologist, and I say, would you would you fancy working for a couple of days a month and solving this problem? And people have just said, yeah, that would be great, you know. <laughs> and I could just imagine doing that in the I year. can't imagine Sorry, I'm saying no to you. In, in six months' time, I'll be able to offer you, you know, a couple of days. So, no, that's <laughs> never going to happen. So the speed with which we can create solutions has been just wonderful. And this journey is just beginning. It's wonderful. I hope so. Are you into cloning? Because I think we should. we need to clone a few of you. <laughs> <laughs> That's another conversation. Um, I did have. Oh, what else? Oh no! You, so talk, maybe sort of segueing to when um, I bumped into you at breakfast yesterday, you were um, chatting with a, a farmer, an Australian farmer, and, and about a report without going into all his detail, perhaps. But what was kind of what what, what was that about in terms of what what are you um, identifying and helping farmers kind of do with with that engagement? Well, I think there's a there's a kind of wave that people are riding, which is around carbon, carbon markets and so on. But I like to go many, many steps beyond that to say, well, where is it all leading? And it isn't just about this um, transient capturing of carbon in the ground. It's about a very different life that people can live with planet Earth. And this is just the first step of the journey. And we need science. We need evidence. We need people to be um, reaping the benefits of all those brilliant people out there who've thought long and hard about a little piece of it. So if anything, the networking of knowledge, the connecting of knowledge, the worldwide wood, the worldwide web, all of this is, I think, coming at a time where young people are just... They're loving it because COVID did one thing for us, which is it opened up spaces where, particularly in the developing world, individuals could never afford to attend meetings, but now they could because Zoom, they got on Zoom and there they were in New York talking to people in Geneva. And that opening up of voices meant that the collective intelligence that we were able to put together in a rapid time meant that, yes, we did amazing things like invent vaccines to you know, combat COVID. But in the surround sound of that vaccine debate, many, many, many people came and talked to each other in ways that they'd never done before. And through that, I think the future of planet Earth with people like regenerative farmers um, is, is absolutely on the cards. And I want to be part of that journey. I really want to be. Well, Jack, and I hope you are, you continue to be part of that. You, you have your finger in so many pies, which is wonderful, and I hope that the, you, you might put a couple more fingers in the regenerative pie just to sort of sort of mosey yourself across to our world because we've really, I've certainly enjoyed your company today and your presentation on Saturday. Um, I know I spoke to so many people who... Um, uh, within the conference who said, you know, yours was one of their favourites and, and and I love the way that your presentation, they all came together, as you said in the beginning, that they were just like fungal high for you all coming together and working together and sending out and contributing. So um, I'm looking forward to more contribution 
to the regenerative um, world, which for me is not just about um, farming and food, it's about human health and planetary health, you know, which is obviously the theme from the other day. Um, I'm conscious of the time. You have to get yourself to another, another um, I'm nearly out of minutes, yeah. Oh, yeah, you've got to go. We're, we're out of here. Jacqueline, thanks so much. Um, you go and we'll catch up soon and I'm just going to follow you around. And wait, you're going to get your book done. I will. Okay, I let's, will. let's do the book. Yeah, but before that, I'm going to write the book called The Science of Deliciousness. Oh, stop it. That's, I have to do a part two. I have to come and track you down in Africa. Thanks, Jacqueline. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. And next week's guest on The Regenerative Journey, I'm thrilled to say, is Dr. Zach Bush. It's taken me two and a half years. To track him down, I've resisted the temptation to do an interview virtually. It would be the, would have been the first one if I had. Uh, but had the honour of sitting with him, um, compliments of Farmers Footprint Australia and Blair Beatty and his wonderful team, getting him out here for 10 days to do a series of events. We sat here at the farm at Byron Bay. I'm still tingling, uh, having re- <laughs> recording this little little uh, little section uh, on the back of that chat. It was, it was intense. It was relaxed. It was wonderful. It was mind expansive. It was all those, it was so many things all at the same time. What a, what a man, what a mind. And, um, you know, to see him actually sort of explore and pull apart and create and, and sort of essentially have epiphanies as we were talking, you know, it was, it was fascinating to watch and, and fascinating to hear and, and have a chat with him. So I hope you get all tingly as well when you listen to this next episode uh, of The Regenerative Journey next week with Dr. Zach Bush. This podcast is produced by Rhys Jones at Jaeger Media. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to subscribe, share, rate and review. For more episode information, please head over to www.charliearnett.com.au.